Hi everybody, today on Mark Summers Unwraps, we have Kevin Pollack and he is brilliant. We discuss bookings and getting bumped. Because nobody believes you at this point that you're actually gonna do the show. You got bumped because you're not good enough. That's what you're thinking, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're thinking. Yeah. Stand-up comedy and stand-up comedians. I didn't know the rules of going to a live stand-up show. I just had this harebrained idea. Many, many, many impersonations. And I just started, Mr. Little, pardon me, sir, I hate the party. <laughs> Jeez, I hate to be a pest, I'm so sorry. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Mark Summers on Raps. I always go back to uh, John Biner, used to do an impression of uh, Ed Sullivan, and he, say it, he used to say he would tune it to the words, and now you know, because Sullivan used to say, now you know. So he used to go, and now you know. And now you know, now you know right here on our show. And he said he could get Sullivan by doing those words. So I guess it depends on what you're looking for. Is it the mannerisms? Is it the face? Is it the voice in particular? Is it a combination of those three? But it's kind of a little magic trick. And I knew comedians at the comedy store back in the day when I was working there who wouldn't do them because they said it's a party trick. Anybody can do an impression, which isn't true. It's very, very difficult. But to sit across from Kevin Pollack and watch him do one after another and have them all be right, you know, in tune and on spot with the person he's trying to do was magical and fantastic to sit across from and watch. I tend to say this every week. I'm excited about uh, our guest. And uh, today we are unwrapping a gentleman who I have been a massive fan. Uh, Kevin Pollack is with us. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you much, uh, very much. Please be seated. This is uh, <laughs> a joy I, a joy for me. I have been watching you forever, and I, I have Tonight Show stories I want to talk to you about, sure, and sure. Johnny stories I want to talk to you about, yeah. but what I realized was you and I led parallel lives, me in Indianapolis, Indiana, you in San Francisco area. Uh, we found our passions early. Mm-hmm. Ten. At, yeah. at ten. See, and I was about the same way. I'm about seven years older than you, so my frame of reference is a little different. Sure. Um, Steve Allen was my first oh my God person. Right. Okay. And he had an afternoon show and a morning show, and I used to follow him religiously. But then I discovered who do you trust? And I would come home from school, uh, sixth grade, Delaware Trail School, and on the ABC affiliate in Indianapolis, who do you trust with Johnny Carson? And Johnny to me was mesmerizing. And then I realized, uh, how do you get in show business if you're in Indianapolis? Uh, my dad was uh, had a grocery store and then the, in the insurance business, and show business didn't exist. So when I realized that Johnny started uh, doing magic uh, in his early career, I took up magic. And that I was the reason? That was the reason. Wow. I became a magician. And so um, I did crazy things. There's a story I want you to tell about Rich Little. I did a similar thing with a guy in Indianapolis. And I thought I was some sort of misfit until I went to college in Boston, a place called Graham Junior College. Yeah. In my school was a guy by the name of Bertu Brow, who created Sally, Jesse, Raphael, and uh, um, Jerry Springer. A guy by the name of uh, Paul Fusco, who created Alf. And then a guy by the name of Andy Kaufman. Uh, and so the school was people <laughs> like me who had these young passions right. and all they wanted to do was be in show business. Mm -hmm. So um, the first thing I memorized was a Bill Cosby album. Oh no. And realized you had done the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. The no and the arc routine yeah. in specifics. I can do it backwards, forwards, upside down. <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know, you can't use Cosby's name too much anymore. Well, if they days. just put in the liner notes. <laughs> That yeah. he would go on to. But, uh, yeah. you know, that was my first performance. And and talk about those days of you doing that in front of the family. 
Well, it was, uh, I directed a, a documentary that's still technically available on Amazon called Misery Loves Comedy, and it was broken into chapters. I interviewed 60 annoyingly famous funny people with the premise being, do you have to be miserable to be funny? And one of the chapters was, uh, who's your daddy and or mommy? And it had to do with, you know, were your parents supportive or were they, you got to get a real job kind of people. And it really did split down the middle, I felt. So the Cosby uh, album, Mom Brought Home, played it on the seven foot wide Wi-Fi. Piece yeah, you of, said it was furniture back then. It was a piece so of furniture. Yeah. Um, and I saw my parents laughing at this voice coming from the furniture telling these stories. And they were laughing in an uncomfortable way for me because I'd never seen them lose their minds laughing before. Hmm. Um, and, and and instantly, inexplicably, wanted to be the one making them laugh or just wanted to bring them that kind of joy. I think that's fairly human. Um, I wasn't envious of the voice coming from the stereo. I wanted to be it. So when no one was around, I would I would listen to it over and over and over again to the point where... I eventually stood up in front of the stereo. I didn't know what lip syncing was, nor did I think I had invented it. I, I, it didn't have a name for me. I was just playing. So I would stand in front of the stereo and what we now know to be lip sync this album. And my mom came home early and literally, quote unquote, caught me doing this. And the first thing out of her mouth was, you're doing that for the Zuckers at Passover. <laughs> so, you know, she could have gone the other way. Yeah. She, she could have been... You know, I, I don't know, so many different reactions. But the fact that she booked me <laughs> was her first reaction. Your first gig, huh? And so at 10 years old, I performed at the Zookers for Passover <laughs> on their white painted out fireplace. <laughs> and you know, it's it's one of the biggest comedians at the time doing his material. All I had to do was memorize when to clear my throat with the, my putting my hand in my face, mouth to clear my throat. And, you know, it was just a timing thing. So- Maybe you and I didn't realize we were learning timing from Jedi Masters. I never thought about that. Yeah, by memorizing these albums. So, yeah, that was the beginning. And then I ended up doing it at a talent show at school, and the place went bananas. And then I, I did the same bit at every folk festival, father-daughter dinner dance, every event at school. Bring out Pollock in that album, you know. Really? From age 10 to 16. I wasn't even speaking. As a, as a performer, ever. You were just lip syncing. <laughs> just a lip sync guy. Wow. And then I, I, you know, to make my friends laugh, I would do impersonations of a teacher or a coach or somebody. And that's where the impersonation started, which became the staple of my stand-up act. But yeah, initially it was just a, an album lip sync. And then I found out Jerry Lewis lip synced Danny Kaye album. And it was kind of a ritual of some kind. You, you and I have to compare our Jerry Lewis stories because- uh... I got him at the end. Oh my God. I got him uh, at the stories. end. Yeah. Um, strange, interesting, talented, crazy man. Sure. In so many different ways. Well, that's very well said. What, uh, what other comedians things. other than Cosby, uh, sort of grabbed you at a young age? Well, at 10, I was already allowed to watch the Tonight Show. So I was, um, you mentioned Steve Allen. So he was the first host of the Tonight Show, but right. you were watching him during the day. Uh, he had a, a syndicated show for Group W. And, uh, at I the same time? Uh, 
Tonight Show or before? No. Uh, oh, no. A- way after The Tonight Show. This okay. was uh, 60s. I'm trying Got, to think. Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. in the 60s. And uh, so funny, you mentioned about uh, watching The Tonight Show. My parents would go to bed and then I would sneak back into yeah. the den. Yeah, but by aloud, that's what I did. Yeah, and watch him <laughs> yeah. and was mesmerized, especially when Buddy Hackett was on. Yeah. I well, was mesmerized by Buddy Hackett. Sure. He was the funniest human in the history of the world. And odd, too, which made it, you know, him uh, sort of an original voice. Yes. But- I think I collected comedians on The Tonight Show like my friends collected baseball cards. Mm-hmm. That that was why I was watching, yep. was the comedians. And when I saw Cosby, you know, I completely lost it, uh, having just heard him come from the furniture. So, <laughs> so then in terms of who else I was inspired by, you know, initially it was George Carlin and Cheech and Chong, certainly, and then eventually Lenny, when I circled back, because I was too young to to be present for his his original uh, uh, walk through. Um, but yeah, and then um, and then Albert Brooks and Steve Martin and that generation. Yeah, same people. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Albert yeah. Brooks, so my hero. I, I lied a lot uh, to get where I wanted to get in show business. So um, sure. My last year of college, I went to school in Boston and I called Steve Allen's office. Wait a minute, you found a college in Massachusetts? (laughs) Hard to believe, right? How did you do that? It was very difficult. So I call Steve Allen's office and say, I'm doing a documentary on what makes people laugh. Oh, wow. At what age? uh, I was 19. Genius. And sure enough, Steve Allen says, come to my office. Yeah. So I come there with a, you know, cassette recorder, shaking in my boots that there I am talking to him. Yeah. And he- he was amazing. He answered every question. When I walked in, he said, wow, I thought you were going to be a lot older than that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so we had this conversation and the last thing I said to him, and I have it on tape is, who's the funniest person you've ever seen in your entire life? He says, you're not going to know who this guy is. Oh, wow. But at some point in the next few years, he said, there's a young comedian. His name is Albert Brooks. Well, Mel Brooks said this and Carl Reiner said the same thing because, you know, they were best friends and, and Albert grew up in Carl Reiner's house yes. as the best friend of Rob Reiner. And when they were asked, who's the funniest, they also said Albert Brooks before he was known. What's he doing now? Is he doing anything? Um, I think, well, we, Jamie and I, my better half, we had lunch recently with Christopher Guest and I think Albert might be going the same route in terms of with the cancel culture. It's sort of difficult to do what you want yeah. as a comedian from a different time. But his... Bits on The Tonight Show. Well, he sort of treated the t- Johnny Carson's Tonight Show like a open mic night. I yes. And he just did bits. He made stuff up. Just for the appearance. Yeah. Yeah. And having and, never tried them before. And Johnny would lose it. Oh, yeah. And it was it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So um, you yeah. and I fascinated with show business. I worked at a place called uh, Starlight Musicals in Indianapolis. Why? I was an usher. But uh, on Saturday nights, they would rehearse the show for the next week. So I got to see Joel Gray direct uh, Cabaret from midnight till five in the morning. Oh my okay? goodness. It was like, you know, a classic. I University. Believe. And so that's the whole reason, you know, once again, how do you get into show business? That was uh, fantastic. And so I would walk up to anybody and introduce myself and ask them questions about how do you get in the industry? You have a story about Rich Little mm. that is just ballsy and amazing. Well, I was 17. Yeah. You don't know any better. Well, you don't. Yeah. And so I don't even consider it brave in any way. It was just- You didn't know better. I didn't know better. <laughs> I really didn't. And at that point I was living in San Jose where the family had moved from San Francisco to raise us in the suburbs. And um, 
Yeah, so so Rich Little at 17 was, you know, he, he had a TV show, Copycats, where yep. he had a lot of impersonators doing sketches, which is, to me, it needs to come back because it was, it's kind of the best part of Saturday Night Live is when it, they it do so sketches good. with impersonations. So. I was doing the Mac Davis show. I was doing warm-ups on the Mac Davis show. Oh, and wow. Copycats was next door to oh, us. Oh, really? So I would go over there and see Julie McWhorter and all these people doing see, their stuff. small yeah. world. Yeah. George Kirby. You know, I would watch the Frank Gorshin and all these guys, David Fry with the Richard Nixon. So Rich Little was kind of the number one uh, performer who did impersonations. Yeah. Not and, great material, though. Uh, how about never great? <laughs> Let's go that far. Let's and he's commit. still working, I hear, in Vegas. Yeah, well, God willing. Yeah. Uh, Dana Carvey and I started in San Francisco around the same time, in the late 70s, and, and we both gave credit to Rich Little, um, who had separately taught us how to do a Johnny Carson, taught us how to do Jimmy Stewart, because someone always breaks the code yep. first, uh, which Dana went on to do for many people in many ways. Um so yeah, so Rich Little was coming to town at the Circle Star Theater with a revolving stage, inexplicably, uh, 2,000 seats. And I had seen, I remember I was 12, I saw Sammy Davis Jr. there. Oh my. Uh, who I just loved because he did everything. And I remember one joke, and this is how many years ago? Centuries. We had just invented fire. <laughs> and he said, um, you people in the back taking pictures, move up, move closer. I look like half a matzo ball from back there. <laughs> um, so Rich Little was coming to the Circle Star Theater and I said, okay, this is it. I'm going to go to the show. I'm going to dress up like my uh, Peter Falk's Lieutenant Columbo character. And I'm going to walk down on the stage at some point and accost him. Now, I had never seen anyone do that. I didn't know the rules of going to a live stand-up show. I just had this harebrain idea. Peter Falk was really the one big impersonation I had. Um, he was on The Tonight Show with Johnny all the time. Johnny loved him. He was just so beloved. And so, again, taking advantage of people love the Bill Cosby album, I would lip sync it. People love Columbo, I would dress up or do the impression. So uh, I, there, there I was, seated in the audience with uh, my one of my best friends, Larry Tracht, and we, we had gone. And I didn't have the, the horrible overcoat thing, trench coat. So his father had lent me his, but I had the shirt and the tie and the stubby cigar and, and the one eye crossed. You know, I had the whole impression down. It was very simple. Um, and I'm waiting now. I'm waiting for my moment because I don't know when, yeah, when, when do you do approach there, right? from 60 rows back. And he was doing set pieces, right? So he would do like a seven minute set piece involving these people at a cocktail party. And then he would do a seven minute set piece of these people at a ball game. And so I finally realized, you know, that there's these big applause breaks between these set pieces. And finally, after three or four of them, I thought, this is it. There's like a couple of minute gap here. And I got up out of my seat and the belt that was attached to the trench coat that I borrowed from Larry Track's father. The buckle of it had stuck in the seat as I stood up in this moment of glory and the belt buckle held me momentarily for a second and said, are you sure you want to do this? And I yanked the belt buckle out from the jacket instead of trying to free it from the chair. And I marched down the stay. I only have a matter of seconds. Don't you understand? And I just started, Mr. Little, pardon me, sir, I hate the party. Jeez, I hate to be a pest. I'm so sorry. And I don't know what I expected. I expect, I was hoping just for a wink. Some well, sort no of acknowledgement. Oh, no, no. I'm yelling at a 2,000 seat hall. Right. To a man with a microphone. Yeah. And having done 
40,000 stand-up shows, I can tell you that if anyone ever approached me thusly, they would be removed from the auditorium. Right. I, I would not engage the way that Rich Little, thankfully, engaged. Um, a man who hadn't improvised, I'm guessing, in his entire life is suddenly faced with this situation. So the impression I'm maybe ruled the day and that's what carried him over to me that he was impressed enough which is all i ever wanted I but just he invited want... you on stage well he did he came over and he he said oh look everyone it's lieutenant colombo he said what can i do for you lieutenant and he puts the mic down in my face and i say i'm sorry to bother you mr little geez i hate to be a pig <laughs> and he's laughing and he pulls the mic back now he starts to do peter falk which was not in his quiver and so he instantly failed and he gets that look in his eyes as he, and it's just the two of us staring into each other's eyes. I can't believe I'm standing in front of a hero this way, and he's can't do it, which actually makes me feel worse, not better. Yeah. So then he shoves the mic back at me to sort of save the moment. And now my voice is off a little bit because I've been thrown that my hero can't do the simple impression. And then he notices this is all happening in a nanosecond, and he says, I'll tell you what, come on, come up on stage. That's what so happens. Is the audience applauding? Is he 2,000 people losing their mind? Wow. They, can't, they, they don't know whether it's planned, rehearsed. They don't know. I'm sure what's going on. Right. I come up on stage and now they can really see me because he's elevated. And a lot of folks just couldn't see who he was talking to. And as I approach, he says, what can I do for you, Lieutenant? And I said, well, here's the thing, uh, Mr. Little. And you're making this all up, right? A little bit. Uh, yes, because I didn't think it would ever go this far. Right. So what, what, what was planned was should he acknowledge me from the audience, this is what I might say, which was, me and the Mrs. C and the baby are coming to the Circle Shaw Theater. We can't believe it. We make plans. We buy tickets six months ago, Rich. And at the last second, she gets sick, and she tells me that if I don't get your autograph, she's not letting me back in the house. So please, if I could just... And with this, I hand him a pen and a, and a pad, which I just planned on getting his autograph at some point. Right. And he takes the pen and the pad, and he's unscrewing it in the middle like it's a felt pen, putting the top and the bottom. And of course, I ain't giving him a ballpoint pen, so this was not going to work out for either one of us. But while he's doing that, he's he says, Canadian. What can I do? Yeah, sure. Uh, while he's doing all that, he says to the audience, like a heckler comeback line, which was suddenly inappropriate to the situation. He had just invited me onto a stage, and he says to the audience, this kid better watch out or I'll do Rin Tin Tin and he'll be the tree. Now- he dated himself by about 50 years yeah. with that reference. Um, it was 1974 or five, something like that. Um, and it was awkward, but the audience laughed. And I thought, hmm, interesting choice. You're going to bring me on stage to put me down. This is weird. But it was just a little chiding and the audience liked it. And when they stopped laughing, he, he notices now that ballpoint pen is falling apart not not working <laughs> which is perfect for my character so he says uh look at this lieutenant Columba gave me a broken pen ah geez did i do that sir i can't believe it he says i tell you what uh lieutenant why don't you come backstage after the show and uh, i'll give you that autograph for your wife ladies and gentlemen lieutenant Columba. i take a bow like i never thought would happen wow. in front of two thousand people i'd only performed in front of the zookers and on the <laughs> fireplace <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know I was floating when I went back to my seat and oh, yeah. I, I, I was laughing harder than everyone applauding at nothing. Cause I know when the show's over, you heard him, Larry, I'm going to go backstage and he's going to take me to show business. That's what's, that's what's planned. Uh, he invited me backstage. I can't wait after the show. I go backstage and there's a line of 40 people already. Cause again, I was in the 60th row. 
Now, as a person who shared the stage with Rich Little, do you think I, A, got in the back of the line, B, walked right up the front of the line and said, I don't, you remember me, I was on stage, or, or C, ah, there's too many people in line, gave up. No, but, I would have gone right to the front. Yeah, sure, of course. But I was only 17, so I got in line with everybody else. <laughs> so you waited. I was what, raised like- properly by folks in San Jose, <laughs> California. So people are now behind me. That, so the line is moving at a pretty good clip. Rich has learned how to sign autographs and say hello and move people along. And so I see how he's treating the people in front of me as I'm getting closer, which is just they'll start on his right. Hi, what's your name? George. And he's signing as they pass by in front of him. Nice to meet you, George. And they're off to Buffalo to his left. Goes back to his right to greet the next person. And this is happening one after another in pretty good clip. Now it's my turn. And I know that Jet must be parked somewhere behind the stage because clearly he's taking me right to show business. No question. And I get up to the front and he sees me and he goes, oh, hey, there he is. What's the name? Oh, uh, my. Kevin. And he signs, Kevin, uh, nice to meet you. And he's on to the next person. Oh. Now- there's, there's no recognition at all, or, hey, thank you, or great job, or <laughs> zero, nothing. Zero zip. Uh, and I was still in the outfit, so it wasn't like he didn't remember. Right. But he had, there was now 30 people behind me. He had to keep the line moving along. I was probably standing between, we were all between him and his shrimp cocktail. <laughs> you know, the show's over. It's yeah. time to go eat. Uh, but I just crestfallen like, like there's no description, really, from, from what had happened to leading up to this moment of glory where he's taking me to show business to, oh, right, I'm just a pedestrian. At some point down the road, did you meet him again? Oh, sure. Yeah. And well, did you remind him and did he remember? I did. And, and he, he certainly acted like he did. You might've been with me, uh, the missus. Um, yeah, we, we, I ran into him on the street in Hollywood. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Just utterly random and mentioned it. And he said, oh, sure. Of course I remember. Well, I couldn't tell whether he actually did. Um, but listen. Uh, this still remains, as you pointed out, a story that's so ridiculous. Yeah. Who would do this? Who would do that? Um, the, the lesson learned by the ending of the story was, was altogether a reality check in terms of it's not going to be as easy as you thought. No. And, and that is the question, you know, I, I got myself, uh, on a local kid show doing magic in Indianapolis. I was a disc jockey. When I was 15, I was a disc jockey in Elwood, Indiana, WBMPFM, and I got to interview Johnny Carson. Oh my goodness. Yes. He was playing Clues Hall in Indianapolis, and I somehow got invited to the press conference, and there I am next to Johnny at age 15, uh, which I still have that tape, as a matter of fact. And I, you well, let's just, reenact it now, shall we? <laughs> I, I was I, just- You said your name is Mark, is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, Johnny, I brought some magic tricks. I, I, I brought- Oh, some- this has never happened. All right, sure. Let's see. What do you got, kid? <laughs> You so gotta, I have some linking rings and a deck of cards. Oh, yield rings. All right, let's link those up, shall we? <laughs> shall I tell you what my card is now so we can move this along? <laughs> I mean, that's what it was like. It's like, why is this kid here? Yeah. And why did he schlep all this stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just so bizarre. So yeah. I became a regular at the comedy store in 76. Okay, you oh, were wow. a, a mirror child at that point. I was just starting, uh, at, yeah, my stand-up career at that point in, in uh, taking trips up to San Francisco. From so San Jose. LA, San Francisco, San Francisco, Robin Williams, of course, uh, mm-hmm. Dana Carvey was there. There, there was a group of folks down uh, in LA and a group in, uh, San Francisco mm, that yeah. sort of ruled the world up there. Uh, certainly in the West um, Coast, yeah. so tell me about your standup days. Cause in doing my research, I didn't realize that's really the roots of, of Kevin Pollack. 
Yeah, it's sort of the left turn as a stand-up comedian who wanted to be in movies but had worked his whole life at that point when the movies came along. In fact, A Few Good Men, which was the first big juggernaut in 92. And amazing. Came out at the same time as my second HBO special, um, Stop With The Kicking. And, um, you know, it was a really big deal in 1992 to get an HBO special. They weren't handing them out. There weren't many places to have a stand-up special. And HBO sort of ruled the world in that regard. And for a a still fairly unknown like myself, it was a gigantic big deal. But then A Few Good Men was such a juggernaut that it completely... Dominate, changes your life dominated yeah i went from audition to getting offers as an actor i mean it really did change everything but it kind of put my stand-up career uh to so much to the side that to this day 31 years later you're right people don't know that i started as a stand-up comedian Had no idea yeah like almost careful what you wish beca- yeah because um it's my first love and i i still do it and on occasion um and and it was weird it was weird to be you know, the success of the films through the 90s w- was so uh, extraordinary, quite frankly, that when I would go to do a stand-up date, the promoters would say, you mean the guy from the movies? They didn't know you he, did he, it. He, he, he does stand-up? Wow. We don't know how to package that. You know what I mean? It was very strange. Very, very strange. And sort of remains to this day, like, even with the su- success of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, my agents are like, people don't know you do stand-up. That is so bizarre to it me. It really is. Because, you know, I remember you going on with Johnny. Yeah. Well, even then, I just did the couch. Yeah. yeah well, this is a great story. Okay. So, <laughs> I, I, you know. You got my, all the great stories. Well, you know, I I did uh, Norm Crosby's Comedy Shop was the first national Love spot that I did. Norm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I auditioned for Merv a dozen times, never got on. I was very close to doing Mike Douglas. Supposedly, David Brenner was going to introduce me. And then the producer who booked me got fired. So, I didn't. Ugh. I got bumped. Yeah. I've done one Tonight Show. I did it with uh, Jay instead of uh, uh, Johnny. Um, oh, yeah, Mark, good to see you. Yeah, you look great. Yeah. <laughs> hey, how you doing? How you guys doing? <laughs> hey, where's, where's Mitzi? <laughs> uh, so um, watching you on the Tonight Show. I, so Jim McCauley was the guy who booked everybody. He was the gatekeeper. He, he was the gatekeeper. Yeah. And yeah. he wouldn't give me the time of day. He'd see me coming, he'd go the other direction, okay? Well, he kind of had to. You know, he if he guessed wrong, if he yes. picked the wrong guy. He was done. Johnny would destroy him. Yeah. I mean, that was the legend anyways. I, Johnny I, came down pretty hard. Kind of think it was true. And sure, so- because by the way, as the host of the show, you put on one stinker, that's on me. That's, yes. Nobody knows the name Jim McCollum. Uh, of course. Yeah. And so, you know, why is that guy on? And I could mention names that I kind of question how they even got on in the first place. You don't have to name them. Uh, no. We all know who <laughs> we they all are. know who they are. So you were offered The Tonight Show and you turned it down, well, which is insane. Once again, I was still very young and didn't- no, uh, enough. Cause you wanted to go to the couch. The deal as a standup was if Johnny gave you the okay sign, that was one thing, but what you wanted was for him to wave you over. Spontaneously and, paneled. Yes. Was spon- what it was called. Yes. And you know, and it only I guess happened to a handful. Freddie Prinze was the one I remember the most. Sammy Davis Jr. was a guest. Uh, they motioned him to come over. And the next thing you know, Freddie Prinze is opening for Sammy, you know, based on what went on that night. Freddie, a 19-year-old at that point. Yes. Was guest hosting at 20. At 20, which and, is insane. And, and gone at 22. Which is, even yeah. very, you know, lots of stories there. Yeah. We can talk about Alan Bursky and all sorts of other folks. But so I would see Albert Brooks do his stuff with Johnny from the couch. I would see Don Rickles do his stuff with Johnny from the couch. I would see Steve Martin do his stuff with Johnny from the couch. And then that became the goal. 
because I had a feeling I'm never going to be a great, great, great stand-up. But some of these impressions would make Johnny laugh so much harder if I was sitting a foot away. How do I get to that couch? So I had been to The Tonight Show several times as a guest of Gary Shandling, um, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, a number of people. The, the deal was in those days, I don't know if it's true now, you would bring three or four guys with you or women and you would sort of run the, 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 the bits and, and uh, leading up to walking through that curtain. Let me start with one second. Good friends with uh, Shandling? Was, sure. I mean- One of the most intense humans I've ever met in my entire <laughs> life. And yet a Zen Buddhist. Yes. And also, I is my personal feeling because he helped write my material at one point. I don't think he ever was happy a day in his life. Um, I think happiness meant a different thing to him. Maybe I think he was too a little too self critical. To uh, you it, think? <laughs> but so many geniuses were. I mean, David Letterman has uh, famously would watch the show after each airing. Yeah, and then get angry. taping with yes. with Morty, they'd go to his office and watch and just scream at the television from beginning to end. Yeah. yeah. About how horrible it was. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think that was Gary's thing. He was too self-critical. He, he, and, he really, but the uh, rest of us adored him and thought he was a genius. Oh, he, yeah, brilliant. I mean, he would. Look he at still my has own. the greatest misdirect joke for my money, which is it, it, because of the economy of words. Also, I was dating this girl. All right, she was a Miss Georgia. Well, she was a former Miss Georgia. It was George Foreman. <laughs> <laughs> he could watch my act and say, "Yeah." You got too many words. Yeah. Take these words out and yeah. put this at the end yeah. and it'll work. And I'd go up the next night and it would. And I was like, how the hell? Yeah. It, but he just knew he was working for, I think he was writing Welcome Back Cotter at the time yeah. or something like that. It's always about the economy of words. Oh my God. Yeah. He, uh, he, he was, he was so great at that. So, okay. So, so, so my heroes, right. Were, had sat and made Johnny laugh. If you can sit next to the king and make him laugh. And then I would meet and see Jim McCauley all the time backstage as the guest of other comedians who were doing their stand-up. So when I saw him one night at the Improv, it was the 111th time I had seen him there. So when he passed by, I said, hey, Jim. Um, and he said, hey, Kevin. Uh, and I said, who are you here to see tonight? Because he was always there to, to, he would circle acts because you had to have two sets ready, yeah, not just right. one. Yeah, in case you really killed, you got to. And Johnny said, bring that kid back in a couple of weeks, yeah. will you? That you, so you had to have two appearances ready. So, so I was curious who he was there to see. And he said, well, um, the guy I was here to see, I just saw on the list canceled and he's not going to be here. And I looked down the list, saw your name. So I thought I'd stick around and watch because I think you're ready to do the show. And I said, oh my God, really? He said, yeah, yeah. Would you like to, would you like to do the show? <laughs> and I said words that never uh, entered my mind before. I don't want it to appear as though I had had thought about this for a second other than my fantasy was to do the couch. But I knew the rules. Having been a fan watching since 10, I knew what it meant to be spontaneously paneled and also being backstage with all these other comedians who were on the show. So I said to him, well, Jim, um, I can't believe you're asking me, but I got to tell you, I, I think I would have a much bigger impact from the couch. Now, I know the, how the show works and the protocol. You can't just bring me out to the couch my first time on the show. But I think I'm willing to wait until I have a TV show or a movie where you can justify bringing me out to the couch. Because I think when I do Peter Falk for Johnny at the couch, he's going to lose his mind and it's going to be a zillion times more impactful than if I do my five minutes standing on the star and I get the OK sign. And what Johnny. did he say to that? Are well, he looked at mind? me like I had just come down from an alien vessel. Yeah. For what seemed like 10 minutes, was probably three seconds. And then he said, do you have a TV show or a movie coming out? 
what I didn't tell him then was that I didn't even have an agent. <laughs> really? I didn't have any prospects. <laughs> I just knew. I just knew. And, and so what I did say was, I don't, I don't. But um, well, he said, well, listen, uh, I think you're, you're, you're close to being ready. If you want to wait, you're just going to get better. That's better for me. Um, you know, we'll keep in touch. And when you get this TV show or a movie, let me know and we'll go from there. Wow. A little over a year later. Now, by the way, I told no one. I told no one because if I knew I told anyone, they'd say- You're out of your mind. You're a moron. Yeah. You need to call him right now and yeah. beg for that opportunity. 100%. Um, I also have to admit now, maybe for the first time, Mark, breaking a story for you, if you don't mind, I was scared. I was afraid to fail on the star and then never have a chance of course. to sit next to Johnny. Yes. And this was a way to protect myself, I think. Um, and so, yeah, it took a little over a year. I did, had Ron Howard's movie, Willow, and it was enough for them to justify bringing me to the couch. And, and so then there's the pre-interview where Johnny says, or, or the Jim McCauley says, well, what do you want Johnny to ask you? Spoiler alert, there's a pre-interview. And so I said, well, just have his first question be, I understand you do impersonations. That's it. And then I'll just start with the Peter Falk. And then we laid out the rest of the questions. But I, I had a feeling that, because again, as I mentioned earlier, he had Peter Falk on all the time. Yeah. Loved him. Because Peter was such a character. Now, Peter also was very open about having one glass eye. He had uh, told some stories in TV Guide. My favorite being in, in Little League, he slid into second base. The ump called him out at this 12 years old, popped out his eye, handed it to the ump and said, you clearly need this more than I do. <laughs> so he had the glass eye at Age that of three, age. car accident. Oh, so because my. he was open about it, I taught myself to do the moving one eye and I knew that would kill Johnny too. And yeah, that was brilliant. Nobody had done that. No one had made that move. Yes. I think Frank Gorshin had done the Peter Falk impression. A few people had, had done it. I certainly didn't invent it. Um, no one owns an impersonation. Uh, so, yeah, the first question, have Johnny just asked me, do you impersonate? So then uh, there it is. I'm standing behind that curtain. Macaulay's standing next to me. Doc and the band are playing in the commercial break. The moment I've waited my entire life for, I'm probably all of 27, 28. Nah, probably 27. And... um. Yeah, the band winds down and Johnny says, welcome back, folks. Uh, my next guest is, uh, is an actor. He's got a new movie, Ron Howard film called Willow. Uh, uh, I, I also understand he's a stand-up comedian. We'll ask him about that. Please welcome Kevin Pollack. Now, I had rehearsed walking through this curtain a thousand times. In your mind. In front of the mirror, and maybe since age 10. And one of the, one of the decisions was, do not wave to Doc in the band. <laughs> As much as you want to, do not wave to Doc in the band. Because? You do that on the second appearance. Okay. Nobody knows who you are coming through that curtain, and yeah. I mean nobody. You've been allowed to sit next to the king. Do not, A, don't waste time waving to the band. Get to that couch as fast as you can. You've only got five and a half minutes with the king. But also the familiarity of Doc and the band is, doesn't belong to you. Yeah. Get to the chair. I pass in front of Johnny. He shakes my hand. I sit down, and he says... Uh, now, I mentioned Willow. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Kevin, somebody told me backstage <laughs> that you do impersonations. Is that right? <laughs> and without missing a beat, I just raised up one arm the way that Columbo did when he says, uh, excuse me. And I said, who the hell told you that, Johnny? That's a bold-faced lie. <laughs> and he was laughing so hard, he was clutching his chest, pushed himself away from the desk, as I'd seen him do with my heroes. And I was a made man in that moment. Oh, yeah. And I was back on two or three times a year until he retired. It's what we all wish for, you know? It truly did happen. And the best compliment afterwards, on, after a few appearances, 
It wasn't people saying this bit killed, this impression killed, this story was great. It was always the best, the best compliment was Johnny loves you. That was the best you could possibly get. Yeah. Cause every time you came on, he, was he asked you to do it. Well, he, well, here's, here's, here's why Johnny will always be the king forevermore in my eyes. After that first appearance, um, every time I, and I mean, every time. And there were dozens. I would come through the curtain. You would cross in front of the king with your back to the audience for a nanosecond as he reached across the desk to shake your hand to welcome you into the chair to do six minutes of otherwise arguably the most nerve wracking six minutes of the year. Sure. And he had made me comfortable by in that nanosecond when I passed in front of him and he shook my hand. He crossed one eye and said, oh, excuse me, I hate to bother. Oh, no kidding. As I'm sitting down. Oh. He's basically saying you have an inside joke with the king. Have a seat. Now, maybe he did that with everyone. I don't know. I doubt it. All I know is he did it with me yeah. every single time. And it was every single time. Bonkers. He never missed it. So even the second time on the show, Macaulay asked me, can you teach Johnny to do the one eye move? Johnny wants you to teach him. Because Johnny did voices and characters yeah. and impressions. Left I Jonathan said, sure. winners and everybody else. Yes, of course. <laughs> I had Flabby. Uh, I said, of course I can teach him. It's a trick. And I can teach anyone. Uh, so I, I taught him that night and uh and he loved it and like i said every time who did. else did he want you to do well one night in the show dudley moore was a guest and i was always well not always but the first many appearances the last guest eventually i moved myself up to second guest um so dudley moore was first guest he was still on the couch which was the tradition of the day and so uh this i guess this was yeah so johnny's Pretty early in the interview, he wasn't on the cards. It wasn't a question that we, we had talked about beforehand. He just said, hey, Dudley, he, he does an impression of you after I'd done a couple, I guess, in the interview. And uh, Dudley kind of half went into an Arthur and said, oh, really? And I said, yeah, I don't want another guy. <laughs> you know, just doing the silly drunken laugh, mostly. And... um. And, and Carson cackled and Dudley said, well, that's quite good, isn't it? Yeah, it's really good. Uh, and so, you know, there were little moments like that that just made the whole experience sort of uh, sing. My favorite I, maybe was uh, at the end of the uh, appearance, you know, Johnny would say goodnight and he would go down the people on the couch and they would plug their wares. And he would go all the way down to the end. It was Placido Domingo. Placido, you have a concert coming up, you mentioned. Yeah, it, but there are no tickets. It's sold out. <laughs> and then the next guest is Chevy Chase. And Chevy, you have the new film. And Chevy said, there are no tickets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're sitting on this couch with these people, and, and the king has welcomed you into his home, and those are the greatest. What a great experience. Yeah. Do you have a favorite impression? Well. <laughs> Very Jewish. <laughs> um, yeah, well, the, the impression's even more so. It's, it's, it's Alan Argon. I mean, for the longest time, it was Albert Brooks, because, again, he's my hero. Yeah. And he, he probably, it's neck and neck, depending on the day or hour or minute between them. But with Alan Arkin, I would call people as him, uh, as like a prank, and they always fell for it, because they didn't want to interrupt Alan Arkin in case it was him. Right. Um, this is a Paul Reiser story, right? The Paul Reiser yeah, story. Yeah, I've heard this story. But, but you can also it's YouTube. It's true, huh? That's very true. But you can YouTube <laughs> an appearance of Michael Keaton, who we just saw yesterday. Um, Where'd you see him? As Batman. Uh, no spoiler alert. I think it's pretty well known in the Flash movie. Yes. But we just did a movie together. So we were going to go to the premiere and I text him saying, are you going to be at this thing? And he said, I'm in London. Um, I think also well known. He's doing uh, 
Beetlejuice. Yeah. Um, so we decided not to go to the premiere, but he said, tell me what you, what you think of it, because I, I think it's really good. And I think it's quite funny. And that's exactly how we felt. It's really good. And it's really funny. Um, but, uh, there's a story that I loved of Keaton. I think he's on Conan and he's telling the story of how I called him as Alan Arkin. <clears throat> and, and what I basically would do is just, I would leave it on people's voice machine. I never want, if the person answered the phone, I would never yeah, do the impression. Yeah. I would just say hello as myself and we'd have a conversation. But if I got people's machines, hi, it's Alan. Listen, I don't know what, <laughs> what, uh, what you're doing right now that you're so important that you're not talking to me, but, um, I thought maybe we would have some lunch if that sounds good to you. Huh. <laughs> All right. Give me a call. So, yeah. So. <laughs> Apparently tortured a lot of people. Oh God, I've heard stories that are just do Albert. Well, here's the thing: if I could, and then I'm going to go lie down because I don't feel better. <laughs> uh, so you remember Larry King had mutual radio? Oh yeah, overnight? I used to listen to it all the time. Of course, driving home from gigs. Of course, yeah. And so he had Albert on a couple of times, and you know it was the only time I'd heard my hero interviewed. So I'm still in San Francisco, and I got the hotline to call into Larry King's show. As, and I was going to do it as Albert Brooks. And I did it. And Larry said something like, uh, th that's, I don't know who this is. It's not Albert, but that's the best Albert Brooks impression <laughs> I ever heard. Who are you? And so we became a little friendly. And then I ultimately ended up on his show. He came to Universal Studios, the Sheraton Hotel, to do his show on the Road is Radio show. And I was a guest. And I was doing Albert on the show. And Albert called in. Oh. From his car. That must have been brilliant. And Larry, I'm, uh, Albert, this is, this, uh, yeah, no, I'm listening. It's very funny. I called my attorney. He has an 800 number. <laughs> he said it was legal, so I think it's great. <laughs> uh, but anyways, I was listening to the show, Larry, and a cop pulled me over. Now he's listening. I'm listening. He gave me two tickets. Uh, so, yeah. And then one time at the improv, you know, Bud had that round table oh, yeah. where everyone, the, if you were somebody, could Yeah, you got to sit, sit. there. And Once so, I got there. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I'm home one night and, and Jimmy Miller, who's become a, a world renowned a manager of a great, powerful talent. Uh, Dennis's brother. Uh, Dennis's brother. who used to book the comedy magic club in Hermosa beach when I first moved yeah. here. Um, he called me and said, Albert Brooks is at the round table. Get here now. And cause, just cause he knew I was obsessed. So I, we had never met at that point. And I came down immediately. And now the, everyone at the table, there's no seats. And no one's going to get up from this table because Albert Brooks is holding court. And there was one great comedian who I love, knew from San Francisco, Franklin Ajay. And I had eyeballed him saying, if there's anyone who's going to get up from this table, it's Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, Franklin. But while I'm waiting for Franklin to get up, Albert's telling this story and he sees me hovering, right? And he clocks me and he incorporates me into his story. And this, he's telling a story about his father, who was a famous radio comic. Park your carcass. Park your carcass. Um, whose name was Einstein, right? Yes. And Albert's name, of course, was Albert Einstein. And so he says, so my father was a radio comic. Hey, Kevin, how you doing? Have a seat. And he, uh, he's buried at the celebrity cemetery there next to, uh, to, to Mo Howard. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Kevin, please, you're making me nervous. Sit down. So, uh, <laughs> oh, really? one, I have this recurring nightmare where, uh, uh, Larry Howard <laughs> is visiting Mo's grave. <laughs> And he's stabbing, Kevin, please, for goodness sake, sit. And, he's, and Larry's stabbing at Moe's gravesite, saying, you bastard, no one will hire me as a single. 
<laughs> and then Franklin thankfully got up and I got to sit. Oh my. Uh, yeah, yeah. When your dad's name is Park Your Carcass, I mean, where do you go from there, man? Yeah. Unbelievable. Jeez, yeah, yeah. that's hysterical the stuff. The heroes, right? Kevin Pollack was so fantastic, we decided to do a two-parter. So stay tuned to more impressions and fabulous stories from Kevin Pollack. Mark Summers Unwraps is a production of Believe Limited, created by me, Mark Summers, and Jessica Richmond. Produced by Keith Corneluk and Jessica Richmond. Executive produced by Patrick James Lynch and Ryan Geelan. Post-production support from Joshua Sterling Bragg and Believe Limited. Don't forget to subscribe or follow the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you really love it, why don't you leave us a rating and a review? Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Mark Summers Unwraps.